Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Well, uh, we went to a friend's birthday party last night, and the short form of this story is that at 29 years old, I am relearning where my body's tolerance levels lie. So today, the day after, bit of bit of a recovery day. Yeah. How about you, Sarah? You've been having to sort of take care of me, which is a crappy job. Yeah, I'm doing all right. Nice Sunday. Perfect day to watch a horror movie. Why is it the perfect day to watch a horror movie? Because every day is a perfect day to watch a horror movie. That's a good answer. Yeah. That's a good answer. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we're watching The Man in Half Moon Street. Which is, I think, going to be interesting. <laughs> Honestly, with this title, I just think of um, The Mad Doctor of Market Street, which was not a horror movie, also wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see how this movie is. Lionel Atwill was good in it. Was he, though? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so this movie has been described to me, because I have never seen it, as a film noir horror hybrid, which should make it quite interesting given the way that we've identified both of those genres as kind of um, evolving from German Expressionism. By this point, it what year is it? 1944? We're into 45 now. Oh, sweet. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. In any case, by 1945, both those visual styles have developed into their own things. Yeah, absolutely. They might have, like, a common root, but they are distinct styles. Right. So it's sort of, to me, intriguing the idea of, like, something that brings them back together. Yeah. The film was produced by Paramount Pictures. The most recent horror picture we saw from them was The Uninvited. And I suspect that its production was motivated by a desire to compete with the upcoming Picture of Dorian Gray from MGM, which came out two months later. Okay. The storyline and kind of, I guess, just like general style of the movie suggests that that was what they were trying to do. (laughs) Um, The film is based on a stage play. What were you able to find out about that, Sarah? So the stage play is of the same name, The Man in Half Moon Street, and it's written by... Barry Lyndon. The the novel? <laughs> uh, so, the, it's a pseudonym of this guy who... His name is Alfred Edgar. Okay. <laughs> sure. So I can kind of get why he chose this pseudonym. Um, but, yeah, it's presumed that this pseudonym of... Like, I think it's actually pronounced Barry Lyndon... Uh, right, because it's got, like, the accent there. Yeah, on the E. Um, but, yeah, it's based off of the, like, Life and Times of Barry Lyndon novel. Yeah. Uh, Alfred Edgar uh, was born in London in 1896, and he lived to be 76 years old, so he passed away in 1972. Hmm. Um, like many authors that we've covered on the show, he got his start in journalism. But while the authors that we've covered in the past have written on news correspondence, or maybe, like, theater reviews. Edgar wrote passionately about motor racing. Oh. 
Like like cars? <laughs> cars, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he was a real gearhead. Okay. Um, he transitioned into writing short stories and then to plays, with his most well-known play being The Man in Half Moon Street, which opened in 1939 in London's New Theatre in the West End, and ran for 172 performances. Okay, sure. Now that's the play he's most well-known for. Another play he's very well-known for is called The Amazing Dr. Clutterhouse, which ran for three months on Broadway with Cedric Hardwick. Oh, okay. Yeah. It sounds like the title of, like, one of those, like, weird movies from the 60s that isn't sure if it's a kid's film or a comedy or, like, what, and has, like, a really psychedelic poster and, like, a an aging star who's trying to, like, get their career back on, on track, you know, and it just doesn't work out. It also sounds super British. Yes. <laughs> 1939 was kind of a, a huge year for Edgar. His first play, The Amazing Dr. Clutterhouse, was adapted to screen by Anatole Litvak and Warner Brothers to star Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart in a film titled the same thing. Really? They kept the title? (laughs) They kept the title! Edgar G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart in a movie called The Amazing Dr. Clutterhouse? Yep. 1939. Well... Okay, this is something we have to track down now. <laughs> this is like pre-Bogey being um, worth anything, if it's 1939. Yes. So, I can see how they managed to get him into a movie like that. Um, I presume he's playing a heavy in it, because yeah. um, Clitterhouse is about a doctor who becomes a criminal in order to study criminality. Okay. So, monitoring his own like blood pressure and stuff like that okay. as he like, does criminal stuff. Okay. Yeah. But the film was a success, and that led to Edgar... Shock. ...moving to L.A. in 1941 to concentrate more on screenwriting. Okay. Um, He would write uh, the screenplay for 1944's The Lodger. That is an adaptation of the novel, but he wrote the screenplay for it. Yeah, the, it's that's not the famous Hitchcock version. Um, no, that's from the 20s? Yes. Uh, but it's a later rendition uh, from the same director as The Undying Monster. Oh. He wrote the screenplay for 1952's The Greatest Show on Earth. Oh, that movie won Best Picture, and everyone thought it shouldn't have. It's generally regarded to be, like, one of the worst Best Picture winners of all time. Dang. It's a circus movie. Yes, it is. And 1954's Sign of the Pagan. Okay, that one I don't know. Okay. It did well at the box office, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Sure, fair enough. Um, Also sounds like a horror movie, so also why I mentioned it. He also wrote the screenplay for The Man in Half Moon Street. Did he, though? That's what Wikipedia told me, though. Um, (laughs) As far as the uh, plot for the play... Yeah. Uh, couldn't find a huge amount of information, um, because anytime you try to look up anything about the play, it all goes to either the 45 film adaptation or the, like, 1955 Hammer Horror adaptation called The Man Who Cheated Death. Which is a much better title. Yes, absolutely. Anyways, the plot revolves around a scientist who uses glands to be eternally young. Mm-hmm. That's as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's about what I have. Um, yeah, it's 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 Dorian Gray, but with like science instead of like painting magic. magic. Yeah, <laughs> um, the film's producer Walter McEwen was mostly known as the producer of the Eleven movie Henry Aldrich series, 
of teen comedies for Paramount from 1939 to 1944, which were based on the popular radio show, which were based on the popular play. Mm-hmm. I I think probably Henry Aldrich has kind of passed out of, like, normal pop culture knowledge, but, like, the the tagline for the show was, like, his mom calling, like, Henry, and then, like, Henry Aldrich being like, coming, mother! Um, <laughs> but it was, like, a, a teen comedy kind of thing. There was a comic book at one point, uh, but it's, it's nothing now. Um, but that's what this producer was basically mainly known for. Um, the film's director, Ralph Murphy, directed his first feature film in 1931. This would be his 33rd feature film and his first entry into genre cinema in any way. Um, you know, his other films were comedies or crime films or whatever, but not nothing involving, like, fantasy elements. However, we do have some familiar faces on the writing team. Um, so this is where I saw that, too, that, that Lyndon was credited for the film screenplay. Um, but looking deeper into it, it was adapted from Lyndon's play by Garrett Fort who adapted Dracula and Frankenstein from their Broadway play versions, and also wrote Dracula's Daughter and The Devil Doll, oh. as well as doing the adaptation work for the 1940 version of The Mark of Zorro. So we've, we've seen his work many times before. Fort had returned to America in 1944 in a Great Depression after failing to get a film made in India about his spiritual guru, Mayor Baba. He would pass away from an overdose of sleeping pills on October 26th, 1945. The finished screenplay for Man in Half Moon Street was written by Charles Kenyon, who specialized in adapting plays to the screen. The film's star is 48-year-old Swedish actor Nils Aster, who we last saw in 1942's Night Monster. Yeah. Now, it is a little bit weird that they've cast someone who's 48 in the role of, like, someone who's, like, you know, an immortal who stayed young forever kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, you know. Uh, Nils Aster was born in Copenhagen in 1897 to deeply religious Lutheran parents, which made his life fairly difficult because he was homosexual. And that was a crime at the time. Uh, as a young man, he moved to Stockholm to become an actor, appearing in the 1916 gay-themed Swedish film The Wings. He became in demand and made a number of films in Sweden, Denmark, and Germany from 1916 to 1927 before leaving for Hollywood. There, he was primarily promoted for his good looks, and he was called the male Greta Garbo. <laughs> With the rise of sound films, he had to work to minimize his accent and was often cast in foreigner Roles of whatever variety. That's kind of how we saw him in Night Monster. Right? Yes. That was the role. Yeah, he was playing like a um, like an Eastern mystic kind of type. Uh, by the point of making this film, his career was on a downswing, and he would return to Sweden in 1958 before retiring from acting altogether in 1963 to focus on painting. His co-star is 25-year-old actress Helen Walker. Like, half his age. Mm. She made her film debut in 1942 and was well-known as a straight woman in comedies uh, or as a reactress, as she called it, uh, since her job was mostly just to react to the shenanigans of the male comedians. Yeah. Her most famous role is likely that of the lead female part in 1945's Brewster's Millions. Okay, it's it's a well-known comedy. Okay. Not to me, apparently. 
Unfortunately, Helen developed a drinking problem in Hollywood, and in 1946, she was drunk driving while giving a ride to three hitchhikers from a nearby army base. Uh, They hit a divider and flipped, and two of the passengers were injured and one was killed. Her criminal trial for manslaughter ended with a dismissal, but her career never really recovered. She retired from acting at age 35 and passed away from cancer at age 47. Dang. Finally, uh, in the cast, we get a blast from the past, as one of the roles in this movie is played by actor Reinhold Schunzel. Born in 1888 in Hamburg, Schunzel was a popular actor in post-World War I German cinema. We saw him in the 1919 version of Unheimliche Geschichten, alongside Konrad Veit and Anita Berber. Oh, was he one of the... One of the three people who's in every story. He's the other guy who's not Conrad Veidt. Oh. Schunzel was Jewish, but he was so popular at the cinema that the Nazis gave him the title of Honorary Aryan and allowed him to continue working and living in the country. He would eventually leave Nazi Germany in 1937 for the United States because he resented the Nazis' creative interference with his films. So that's why you leave. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. He appeared in Hollywood movies throughout the war, often playing Nazis, uh, before returning to West Germany in 1949, where he died in 1954. Was he uh, tried on anything as being like a collaborator? Not that I could find out, no. Which might have just been because, again, he was very popular. Sure. So he just kind of, that overrode everything else. Cinematography for this film is by Henry Sharp, whose career stretches back to 1920. Uh, He shot uh, the Marx Brothers film Duck Soup in 1933, and we know him from his cinematography on Dr. Cyclops in 1940 and The Mysterious Doctor in 1943. So, oddly enough, this film's biggest, like, surviving legacy here in the year 2019 might be its score, Mm. which is by Hungarian-American composer... Miklos Rosha, born in Budapest in 1907, he started playing violin at age five and later viola and piano. By age eight, he was performing in public and composing. He studied music at the University of Leipzig, graduating in 1929. In 1932, he moved to Paris, and his works began to win acclaim from high society and fellow composers like Richard Strauss. His piece, Theme, Variations, and Finale, was especially well-received. That's a very um, specific title. (laughs) To supplement his income, he became interested in scoring for film. And in 1937, he moved to London and began working for film producer Alexander Korda, scoring The Four Feathers in 1939, The Thief of Baghdad in 1940, and The Jungle Book in 1942. By 1943, he was on payroll at Paramount, uh, composing the score to Double Indemnity in 1944, and Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound in 1945, for which he won an Oscar. His score for The Killers in 1946 was later used as the main theme of the radio and television series Dragnet. You would 100% recognize it if you heard it. The story you are about to see is true. 
The names have been changed to protect the innocent. He received his second Oscar in 1947 for A Double Life and moved to MGM in 1949, where he won his third Oscar for his 1959 score for Ben-Hur. Dang. In his later career, he scored the Ray Harryhausen picture The Golden Voyage of Sinbad in 1973, and his final score of his career was for Steve Martin's film noir parody Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid in 1982. So... The reason why I talk about the score as being this film's legacy is The Man in Half Moon Street was released on January 19th, 1945. I can find no information about how well it did in theaters or what the critical response was. You cannot get it on DVD, at least not officially. Uh, Bootleg DVDs derived from 16mm prints are available, but the 35mm negative's location is unknown. Officially, rights to the film are controlled by Universal, uh, making those bootleg DVDs illegal, uh, because Universal purchased Paramount's pre-1949 library in 1958, but Universal has never released the film on home video, only occasionally showing it on television. But a remastered CD of Roja's score is available, released in 2014... And, like, when I went to go do research for this movie and try to figure out stuff about it, on, like, a two-to-one ratio, the results were for the score and for the (laughs) album. Like, if I was looking for, like, reviews or, like, information or, like, any kind of product release, you can't, you know, find it online, but you can find the score online. Like, all of this kind of stuff. Uh, Which was a weird, a weird thing. So, I'm presuming that at least the score is going to be good, if nothing else. (laughs) Uh, Alright folks, well good luck finding a copy and when we come back we will discuss The Man in Half Moon Street from 1945 directed by Ralph Murphy. See you on the other side everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man in Half Moon Street. Sarah, what did you think? Uh, it was well acted. The music was probably the best part. Yeah, the scoring was quite fun and definitely carried parts of the movie. Mm-hmm. Very lush. Yeah. Not a horror movie, though. Yeah, but here's the thing, and here's why I think it's still going to be very interesting to talk about. Yeah. What the fuck is it, though? <laughs> like... At the top of the show, I said it was a horror movie with film noir elements, because that's how it was described to me. This is not a horror movie, and other than the fact that there's cops chasing a dude and people wear trench coats, there aren't film noir elements. So, like, what the hell is this? So, I think it's too tepid to be horror. It's too much a dramatic film, like a drama, mm-hmm. to be thriller. Mm-hmm. I think what hurts this film in terms of figuring out where its genre lies Mm -hmm. is the fact that the pacing is, um... Abysmal? (laughs) Is the fact that it's paced like a play. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, you could 
easily see this being performed on stage. Yeah. Uh, you could easily imagine... What's, what's wild is that the play was written in 1939, because this feels like a play from 1890. Yeah. But um, let's, let's talk plot quickly, all right? Yeah, give us the lowdown. So Nils Astor plays Dr. Julian Carell, and he is both a scientist and a painter, because I guess People we can do two things. I guess we wanted our picture of Dorian Gray thing to be really obvious. <laughs> and uh, he's been engaged to paint a portrait of a British noble lady, basically, um, named Eve Brandon. Her dad is like Lord Brandon or some shit. Sir Humphrey Brandon. And uh, over the course of the month he's spent painting her, uh, he has fallen in love with her, much to the chagrin of Dr. Henry Latimer, who is, like, I guess supposed to be a romantic rival. Now, I will say for Nils Astor, he's done a, like, and this might be because we were watching, like, a 16 millimeter print, but, like, he does look convincingly 35, Ish, which is the age he gives in the movie, rather than his 48 years old. Dr. Henry Latimer looks like he's 62 and, like, wants to be (laughs) the, like, romantic rival character in this movie, which is wild. The youngest I would put Latimer is, like, 52? Yeah. Anyways, um, so there's a big soiree to debut the portrait uh, at the Brandon household. So Sir Humphrey's there, Dr. Latimer's there, Julian's there, he hasn't met Sir Humphrey yet, Eve's there, and they're showing off the painting. And... A couple of curious things happen uh, over the course of the evening. Like, for example, there's an old dowager at the party who, like, recognizes Julian. And he's like, oh, that's that's my grandfather you recognize. But then he's able to, like, converse with her about things his grandfather supposedly did with, like, great accuracy. At home, receives a visiting scientist from Cairo, uh, an old friend of his, uh, Dr. Kurt Van Breuken, uh, who is played by Reinhold Schunzel. And the initial implication is that this is, like, the great old mentor, and Julian is his, like, protege. But the clues continue to pile up. This movie likes to do all kinds of cute things of, like, implying but not saying what's going on. But it's really obvious. Um, Julian's immortal. Or, like, functionally immortal. He's, like, 90 years old. Um, Because... 60 years ago, him and Van Broeken discovered that you could stay young forever by taking someone's glands out of them and putting them into you. Young person's glands. A young person's glands. You You may remember this as the plot of The Corpse Vanishes, starring Bella Lugosi and Elizabeth Russell. I mean, there's been a lot of things about glands. Glands are like the 1940s version of like what radiation would be in the 60s or what like DNA is now. Like, it's just, you can throw it out there, and it can do anything. Yeah. Um, and, like, the, the sci-fi magic that they're talking about mm-hmm. with what glands can do in mm-hmm. this film fits with how glands have been talked about in other movies thus yes. far. Like, yeah, it's not, like, sure. anything new. No, 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 not at all. So, we learn this much, much later. But the deal has been that uh, Julian's needed a re-up on the glands every 10 years. Van Broeken hasn't been taking them, so he's, like, super old now. He was actually much younger than Julian when they started. But in order to get the glands from people, those people have to die. So, at this point, you would think, aha, I understand where this movie is going. 
this guy needs people's glands to live, so he's going to go out into the night and have to, like, bring people back to the, you know, lab and kill them and get their glands. And then, you know, people will gradually find out, and at one point he won't be able to get the glands in time, and he'll turn old, much to everyone's horror. We saw something similar in The Ape Man. Right. Karloff's Ape Man, to be specific. (laughs) But that's not quite what happens. This movie instead, in my personal, professional opinion, stretches what would be the first act of the movie you think it's going to be out to the entirety of the movie, and then there's a climax. So (laughs) There's a climax? Yeah. So it would be, it's fine, it's whatever. Julian does go out into the night, and he does find a young man to bring back to take the glands out of. But, like, this movie is so bizarrely, like, tepid about anything in it actually ever happening. Because he follows this man into the night. The man's about to commit suicide. He jumps into the Thames. Julian jumps in after him and rescues him. Clearly the glands have to be alive when you take them out. But the uh, person will die from the procedure. He brings this kid back and tries to convince him, like, oh, you're going to be me and Dr. Van Broeken's, like, assistant, because this kid's, like, a medical student. That'll bring you glory, and then you won't be so depressed and stuff. Uh, And the kid agrees to that. But then he just locks this kid in a room for, like, the next week, and we kind of forget about him, and nothing happens. Dr. Van Broeken has become convinced that this whole experiment is against the laws of God and nature. Uh, So he's refusing to help anymore. There are several scenes in a row of Dr. Van Broeken and Julian arguing about whether they're going to commit to this experiment or not, and Van Broeken saying no, and Julian trying to convince him. Uh, There are several scenes of this kid being like, I don't want to be involved, and Julian trying to convince him to be involved. The other problem is that Dr. Van Broeken, being so old, now has, like, very shaky hands. He can't perform the surgery. So there's also scenes of Julian going around London trying to find discredited surgeons to do the procedure, which never succeeds. Um, He never finds anyone to do the procedure. Meanwhile, Eve has announced her intention to marry Julian to her father. And her father's like, well, I don't know anything about this guy, so let's start doing some background checks. And they start picking up, like, some weird things, like this portrait that he did of Eve is in the exact same style as this portrait of this artist from, like, 60 years ago. (laughs) Um, His fingerprints... Which, like, is a neat thing. Like, I I did enjoy, like, little things like this. Oh, I think the movie is intelligently written. I just think it's really... Boring? Tepid. It's really... I'll get into this later. Awesome. The, the point is, there's some other like weird things. Like it's known that Van Broeken's experiments are a little bit out there, and uh, Julian has told Doctor Latimer that like they're doing them at his house, which like sets off some alarm bells for Latimer for some reason. Even though every mad scientist I've ever seen in any movie always has their lab in their house, so isn't that just normal? No, that's because they're mad, Ben. Right? Sure. <laughs> now. With Dr. Latimer being um, Julian's, like, romantic rival slash the guy trying to, like, expose him, and Julian needs, like, a surgeon to do his thing, you might think that where this movie is going is he's going to get Latimer to do the thing through some conniving way, and that'll get the plot rolling in terms of things happening. No, that never happens. He considers it for, like, a second, but no. Scotland Yard gets involved because Sir Humphrey is rich and part of the elite and can just get the head of Scotland Yard to look into his daughter's fiancé for him as a favor. They do some analysis on the paintings. It is by the same dude. They also get his fingerprints and find out that they match the fingerprints of, like, a serial killer from, like, 1870 who kills people, 
every ten years. Hmm. And so the pieces are starting to fall into place for people. The only thing that's really preventing them from, like, really recognizing what's going on is how wild it is that the only conclusion they can come to is that the 35-year-old-looking Julian is actually a 90-year-old man. Things are getting worse. Uh, The only surgeon that Julian can find is in Paris, uh, and he won't come to England. He insists that Julian and Van Broeken have to go to him. So Julian gets some train tickets to Paris and pretends to Eve, like, we're going to go off to Paris and get eloped. Come with me. Van Broeken's like, no, these experiments are against nature and God, and refuses to go and burns all of his notes. The police end up catching up with Van Broeken. Julian and Eve go to the train station. They hop on a train. Now, through the whole movie, it's been clear that, like, Julian's current ten years are up. That, like, he needs this badly. Which makes the fact that he never did anything with that boy in his house super uh, weird. Like, he just lets the kid sit there. Eventually, the kid kills himself. Because you took a suicidal person and you trapped them in a room for days with nothing to do. And then it's like, oh, no, the kid's killed himself. It's like, yeah, man... You, you leave apples out on the counter, they're going to go bad. Like, you got to eat them. Anyways. <laughs> eat the boy. Right. So, <laughs> finally, this catches up with him on the train. Uh, because he's been unable to, you know, get the glands in time. So, now he, he's closing all the shutters on the train so that Eve won't see his deterioration. But there he goes. He rapid ages into an old man. Wally Westmore repeats his same makeup trick from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. Still looks good. Mm-hmm. Like, it still works. And uh, Eve finally figures out Julian's deal. Now, the thing that's interesting about Eve is that, like, Eve wants to be a mad scientist's wife. Like, she doesn't know that Julian's a mad scientist to start. He's just this guy who's painting her portrait. But, like, the more she finds out, she's like, no, men like Julian are men of vision and common people who can't think large. Like, men, heroic men, like, like she goes off on these big, like, Ayn Rand speeches about, like, the, the few who can dream, you know, what's bigger out there. Um... And and she's totally, like, even once uh, Julian explains to her, like, yeah, it's taking glands from people, and I'm actually 90, and all this stuff. She's like, I will, I will live your dream with you. Like, she's totally into it. Uh, but the cops catch up to them at, like, the next stop. Julian tries to get away, but he's old now, so he dies of a heart attack. The end. And that takes an hour and a half. Um, Which I think is about the length of a play, like a standard play. I mean, a Shakespeare play is like four hours, but... Listen, Shakespeare's an outlier and should not be considered. Ah, okay. I mean, I feel like he makes up the majority (laughs) of most theater companies, like, you know, yearly rotation of plays, but that's okay. So, the thing about this movie is, like, sometimes it acts like it's a mystery, Because we've got these Scotland Yard dudes chasing down the clues and trying to put the pieces together and, like, catch this guy at the end. But it's a mystery where we know the answer, like, ahead of time. I feel like as an audience member, like, I know the answer before the movie even tells me the answer. Because the movie keeps dropping all these, like, coy, subtle clues. And it's like, yeah, I've seen a B-horror movie before. I know what this is. Yeah, and if they wanted to do some kind of, like, dramatic tension... Mm -hmm. Um, they could have done it better. Yeah. Like, they shouldn't have been faffing about with, like, all of these other characters. So much of the movie, and to be fair, this is a trait that it kind of shares with Dracula, but Dracula's a movie that manages dramatic tension a lot better. 
a lot of this movie is people politely talking to one another in drawing rooms. It's things like a police inspector talking to Julian, being like, excuse me, Dr. Carell, would you have a moment to answer a few questions? Oh, yes, please, inspector, come inside. Shall I get your hat, inspector? Yes, of course, Dr. Carell. Oh, can I get you a seat? Can I get you a brandy? Yes, of course. Yes, I would like to. And then, like, a few, like, oh, are you a guy who's immortal and killed a bunch of people? Why, no, of course not, inspector. Well, see you later, Dr. Carell. And, like, it's that, like, <laughs> over and over again, just these scenes of people politely talking to one another drawing out the plot for as long as possible to prevent it from happening because like it feels like like if this was a movie being made today and was similarly working on the trends of modern cinema the way that this movie is tapping into the trends of 1940s cinema there'd be it would be like a superhero movie where characters were like explaining hypothetically the concept of a superhero back to each other over and over again, but never saying the word superhero, just like hoping the other person will get what they mean. Like, suppose you went out at night in spandex, though. What do you think would occur? And the other person being like, why, the idea is preposterous, but perhaps such a person might fight criminals. Like, and you're sitting there like, yeah, I get it. He takes glands out and puts them in. He's a, I get it. It, it sometimes <laughs> feels like this movie's wanting to be a thriller, but it's exceptionally slow, so it can't thrill you. Exactly. Yeah, that's why it feels more like a drama than a thriller, especially with the emphasis during the climax of Eve being like, our love will continue on our dream yeah, of science. The final shot of the movie is her like walking away from his dead body like she's fucking Joseph Cotton at the end of The Third Man. Uh <laughs> You know, and, 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 you know, being all, like, dedicated to, like, his dream or whatever, as if she's going to, like, found the, like, Julian Carell Institute for gland research after this. Like, the movie spends so much time on the romance and has such, like, flowery romance dialogue between them that I could have sworn this was made by MGM. (laughs) Um, there were parts where, like felt like Paramount was trying to tap into stuff that happened in Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, it feels a lot like that's the um, formula or the, like, blueprint that they're going with here. But they don't understand why Jekyll and Hyde was so good or why horror is a genre or how to do horror, I think. Yeah. Like, part of it is, um, part of the Jekyll and Hyde feel is uh, they're using some of the same sets. But it's also like the scientist who's working on experiments whose stuffy dad isn't sure if he's going to allow him to marry his daughter, right? But that's like, it. That's it. There's no, like, but he's, like, secretly beating someone on the side. He never does anything. He doesn't do he anything. He doesn't do... He, 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 he has kind of a nasty attitude sometimes, and, like, you get and he's these... he's murdered people. In the past. In the past. He doesn't and murder like, he, anyone in the movie. The one victim in the movie kills himself yeah. out of boredom because nothing's happened. But, I mean, his intent is to kill, and he is manipulating, but there's no, like... I guess what I'm trying there's to no say... There's no smoking gun. There's no smoking gun... But there's no threatening to the audience. No. Like, we don't get any time with the boy mm-hmm. um, to sympathize or, like, empathize with him feeling threatened. And he never really feels threatened. No. Like, we know that this guy is kind of an asshole. Like, it's kind of like, you see it in, like, his attitude sometimes, especially when Van Broeken's like, we should abandon these experiments. And he's like, fuck off, old man, we're doing it anyway. Like, <laughs> but the, I think the problem is that the movie can't decide if he's villainous or sympathetic because sometimes you think that the other shoe's going to drop and it's going to be like oh eve's going to find out that like 
he doesn't really care about her and that like he would drop her for a second if it would like ensure that the experiment will work or that like he'll stay alive or whatever. And you think that's going to come. And then like, it'll switch right back to him being like, ah, my darling, your eyes are such as the stars or whatever the fuck. So like the movie can't decide, I think in general, at no point does this movie seem like it has made up its mind about what kind of story it wants to tell. I think that's what they were going for, actually. Because the movie starts off with, like, one-on-one, almost, like, interview styles with Latimer, Eve, and the Scotland Guard police chief. Mm -hmm. Um, Each kind of saying, like, what did I think of Julian? Well, I thought he was an asshole. I loved him. He should have been arrested. Yeah, it's, it's, they're doing the Citizen Kane riff, which but terribly. Is, well, and also, like, forgetting the fact that, like, that is set up in Citizen Kane because it's part of, like, a newsreel. Like, there's context to it. Here it's just... A he, guy. Yeah, it's just here. Yeah. There's just a narrator who, like, intros the concept. It's interesting to think about, like, you know, the glam stuff we've seen before, the mad scientist we've seen before... And it's like this movie is trying to bring in some nuance about, like, well, what is a mad scientist? Because this film is, like, really interesting in how some people talk about, like, you're going beyond the limits of science. Well, who determines those limits? Mm, yeah, it's, it's very intelligently written, but, yeah. like, I think this movie feels like it was made by people or for an audience that sort of, you know, thinks this horror stuff is rather ghoulish and not quite proper, what? (laughs) Like, it feels like the kind of thing where, like, it's made for an audience that, like, whose, like, monocles would pop off at the concept (laughs) of, like, looking at your wife before marriage. (laughs) The, the, um, like... Cummerbund explodes. Cummerbund thing, like, rolls up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... It, it it feels like it's it's Jekyll and Hyde for like the crowd of people who would faint at Jekyll and Hyde, and we we wouldn't want that, wouldn't we? Yeah, it maybe that's also why it feels like a play, and specifically a very British play. Mm-hmm. E- like obviously, it's a British play. It was written by a dude from London, but it's like an American studio. Yeah, but it's still like in that like oh you know the BBFC wouldn't approve of anything happening in this movie, you know? Yeah. Um, Like, the thing about it is, like, the central story, the concept of this dude, and the fact that, like, the ending, which you know is coming, where he's going to turn old and die, this movie would have worked if it was, like, a six-page comic book, (laughs) or if it was, like, a 60-page short story, or if it was, like, a half-hour short. But I think it would have worked as an hour and a half movie. They just needed to kind of, like, go for it. Well, that's the thing. What I mean is, like, unchanged in terms of what happens in the story. This would work at half an hour because then it would be, like, a little, like, you know, O. Henry, Tales from the Crypt, like, kind of spooky twist thing where it's like, oh, who is this guy? Oh, what are his mysteries? Oh, and then it turned out he was old. Brum, brum, brum. <laughs> and then, like, you know, everyone around the campfire goes, ooh. Like, that's the kind yeah. of story it is. But dragged out to an hour and a half, you need more things to happen. He needs to kill a few people along the way. Yeah. Like, like, on screen. Yeah, like, and a, like not just mentioned his backstory. Yeah. Like, things um, need to happen in the movie. Dr. Van Broeken says at one point, like, I know we need to get the surgery done soon or you'll disintegrate, yeah. Julian. And I was like, ooh, disintegrate? He just gets old. 
Well, and also... I wanted him to disintegrate like a mummy. The, there's he, no, they call him a walking, living mummy. Right. Like, he should be older than 90. Like, it would be cooler if he was, like, 200 or some shit. Yeah. But also, like, there's no ticking clock. Even if the dialogue keeps saying, like, oh, you know, you gotta get the glands, Julian. Like, all of his deterioration happens at, like, the very end. Yeah. Right? And he seems to be in no hurry to, like... The movie's in no hurry for anything to happen. It's just people talking about, well, suppose something did happen. <laughs> um, people just sitting around talking hypotheticals to each other. Who was this movie meant for? Because, like, the poster, if you only saw the poster of this movie, I would totally forgive you for thinking, like, oh, this is a film noir. But it's it's not. No. And it's, There's shadows. Right. That's it. And dudes in trench coats. But, like, there's no real horror here unless, like, yeah, you're 86 and you're, you know, this is all you can handle. Um, Yeah. When adapting a story Mm -hmm. across mediums, Mm -hmm. I think you have to ask yourself, who is this for? Mm -hmm. Is it for the same people? Like, is the Harry Potter film for the same people reading the books? Uh, Yes. Yeah. But, like... Is the people that like the Princess Bride film for the same people who read the book? Right. No. You know, in this case, are we making this Hollywood studio picture for the same audience that went to go see a London West End play? Probably not, right? Yeah, and I think that's why this film has disappeared into yeah. like the film ether. No kidding. The other thing about adapting something from another medium is you have to recognize like what are the strengths of your medium, right? Like in a play, you're going to have a lot of scenes of people standing around and talking to each other because that's kind of what plays are. Yeah. Um and I'll admit like some of the dialogue as we've pointed out is is quite intelligent, quite good. But like in a movie like even if you didn't want to change the story too much, then like start the you can start the story earlier. You can yeah, show you him can killing some dudes. You can show how we got to this point. You can do a flashback to when uh, Julian and Doctor Van Broeken were younger and show like their beginnings. Right? Yeah. Like you can have him disintegrate on screen. Yes. Like him turning old and like the change in performance that we see. Like that's good and that would work for a play. Mm-hmm. I wanted more. Yeah, I mean, the acting is good. Like, yeah. Niels Astor, uh, Reinhold Schunzel, Helen Walker, they, they all, everyone in the cast does a very good job and performs things very well. But there's, yeah, there's just not enough here. Like, this is the first act of a movie. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly cuts to the climax where he gets old, right? But there's nothing in between. And there were so many moments where I was just like, just fucking give it to me. Where, yeah. like... It felt like, oh, is this where we're going to ramp up? Yes. No, no. Okay, okay. Oh, is this where we're going to No, no, no. Anytime that it felt like the tension was building, it did something to undercut itself. Yes, it would pull back. And it, the... so it felt like I had, like, horror blue balls. Yeah, well, it, it really, like, does feel like a movie that's, like, trying not to, you know, offend too much, right? Like, like where it's like, oh, yes, maybe something will happen. But, but heaven forbid something did, yeah. you know? yeah. It's kind of ironic, because for a movie where it's it's all talk about, like, well, who defines the limits? Anyways, this film is so concerned about even getting close to the limit of mm-hmm. what is acceptable for horror. Yeah, absolutely. If this movie was made 20 years earlier, right? Like, in the 20s, when Niles Athler was young and a star, I would have said that this was horror. I would have allowed it. Yeah. Right? 
but not in 1945, guys. Come on. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so I'm not sure what this is, mm-hmm. but it isn't horror. So it goes on the uh, not applicable list uh, on the old Scream Scene website, and we move on with our lives. Yeah. I do have a question for you, though. Mm. Like, obviously, we've kind of established that this film isn't quite noir either. Mm. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to have a noir horror film, or do you think that that is just a thriller? I think at that point you're you're basically hitting what a thriller is. Yeah. Right? Like, I think... I think noir is too, honestly, like, too... Distinctive sl- at this point. Well, and also, like, as a storytelling narrative, noir works best when it sort of has some time for characters to, like, sit and stew in their problem, right? Like, a noir character knows how bad things are going for them and has time to, like, sit in a diner smoking a cigarette monologuing about how bad things are going for them. And in horror, if you did that, it would eliminate the tension, right? It's like, no, you need to be, the characters need yeah. to be a little more pressured, right? So or I think you, the monster would catch up with you. Right, exactly. So I think when you, but I think when you give that sort of sense of um, danger and fatalism, you know, like, I think you're right. You mix those two together, you've got thrillers, right? You got what Hitchcock made. Yeah. Okay, cool. The other reason why I think it's important that we're talking about this now is because it's going to get that Hammer Horror remake, in the 50s, right? Absolutely. So we have that context going in to determine, like, what does that movie do that makes it horror when this is not, right? I think also with Picture of Dorian Gray being next week, because yes. this is trying to, like, riff off that, that yeah. and steal its thunder. And, like, we've seen Picture of Dorian Gray, so we know it's a horror film. So I think part of next week's discussion is going to be like, so why did Dorian Gray work and this didn't? Exactly. Well, folks, if you want to see the other films that are on the Not Applicable list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to this and other episodes we might have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If The Man in Half Moon Street is your favorite horror film and you think we are bonkers for treating it in this way, send us an appeal through our Ask box on Tumblr or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore scream scene. And tell me how you're getting the glands that are keeping you immortal, because I don't think... Like, you <laughs> that's have to how be, old this is. <laughs> that's how old you would have to be for Man in for, Half Moon Street to be your favorite horror movie. Yeah. Um, they do say, oh, the Man in Half Moon Street? Yes. Mr. Julian? Yeah, they do like, say <laughs> the title. Um, scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the podcast through our RSS feed, and if you'd like to leave us a rating or a review, we would love that. You can tell a friend about us uh, online or in real life. Word of mouth helps podcasts grow their audience. Another way you can help out the show is by going to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get rewards. We've got some special stuff coming in for uh, October for the spooky Halloween season. Uh, so keep watching your Patreon feed to see what that's going to be. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. Well, we've kind of already spoiled it, but what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week we are watching The Picture of Dorian Gray, Sarah. Angela Lansbury, finally! <laughs> yeah. So we'll see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!